following is a recording of a sermon given at All Saints Lutheran Church in Ottawa, Canada. For additional messages and more information, visit allsaintslutheran.ca. Well, I'm very excited about today's uh, lesson because it's when I when I got the the reading, I thought, wow, you know, Elijah, he's one of my favorite heroes in the Bible because you know, he <laughs> he really stood up for God. Anyway, I think Pastor will tell you the whole story because the reading kind of starts in the middle of the story with, with Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab was the king of Israel, the northern kingdom, and Jezebel was his wife. She was a Phoenician princess, and she brought Baal worship. And they actually built a temple to Baal in Samaria. Anyway, that's where, that's where the reading starts. 1 Kings 19, verse 1 to 18. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets of Baal with, well, it doesn't say of Baal, but all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a prune tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, or as I always heard it, a still, small voice. And Elijah heard it. He wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, 
and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mohola you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is the word of the Lord. One of the ways that we see that the characters in the Bible are just like us is in the fact that they are not all the same. It's not as if God is looking for a certain set of characteristics uh, for the person that he chooses to use for his service. We see in the Bible this wide range of, of personalities, of abilities, characteristics, and so on. And there's quite a contrast between who we looked at last week, David, and this week, we're looking at Elijah. And again, this should give us hope because we are all so different. And that is exactly the way God wants it to be. He's done it on purpose. And so Elijah, as I said, very different from David, different kind of calling, personality, challenges, victories, struggles. And what I would like to share about him this morning may speak more powerfully to some than to others. In fact, it might even make some people feel uncomfortable. But everybody needs to understand people like Elijah. Bit of an overview. He was the first of a, what we might call a new prophetic order among the people of Israel. The, the kingdom of Israel had been going into demise for generations and so we're seeing now, while there were always prophets, even Abraham was called a prophet in the book of Genesis, uh, there were always prophets and people called seers. The office or the, the role of the prophet, being a spokesperson for the Lord, emerged into this new central place in the life of the people as the, the kings were getting worse and worse and worse through Thus, through the centuries. And so Elijah begins this, this new type of role for the, for the prophet. God called him to stand against wicked King Ahab and his evil queen Jezebel. He performed miracles. Many people think that the Bible is full of miracles. Well, the Bible has miracles. It isn't as full of miracles as some people think. We see that there are what the Bible refers to as signs and wonders through various people at various times. Moses being one of them, Jesus, of course, being uh, the greatest. Um, and then there are a few. And Elijah and his successor, Elisha, I know those names sound very similar, but as a little bonus this morning, the original Hebrew is Elijah is Eliyahu, and Elisha is Elisha. So Eliyahu and Elisha, they're, they're still close, but they're not as close as Elijah and Elisha, which almost sound the same. So these two prophets, 
they perform more miracles than any of the, uh, the other prophets. Many of them, we don't have any recording of a miracle. Anyway, there's miracles that, be, that, uh, that mark Elijah's prophetic ministry. He prepared for his, he was the one who prepared for his successor, Elisha, and he's one of two people that we read in the Bible who never died. He was taken uh, to heaven directly. And that event has sparked all sorts of, we'll call it like a mythology in, in, Jewish, uh, in Jewish tradition, where he becomes almost like a, a patron saint of, of the Jewish world who goes and visits people in need. Um, of course, we're told that he's to return uh, before, uh, to usher in the coming of the Messiah. And I know a lot of people don't seem to know this, but Jesus makes it pretty clear that he came in the person of John the Baptist, not in the form of reincarnation, but that John the Baptist, in ushering in Jesus the Messiah, is that prophetic return of Elijah, not a, not a literal one, as some have expected. I don't want to distract you with that. Maybe you already did, but let's, let's move on. And so the, the passage that was just read for us is the is the incident that we're going to focus on and some personal effects that happened to Elijah, but some further background specifically on the passage that was read. I think as was already mentioned, many of the people under Ahab and Queen Jezebel had turned to the false but popular gods of both Baal or Baal and Asherah. And these were, uh, Baal was a, was like a weather god. You think Canadians are kind of people that they seem to still worship the weather god. But, and and, and it, they're also, Canadians are in denial about weather. It's so funny. A couple of days ago, you know how nice it was, right? It, was like it felt like spring. And I, I've seen this over and over and over again. I'm, I'm walking, doing my, uh, my walk, I think it was in the morning, and uh, a neighbor walks by, we live in a friendly neighborhood, nice day, nice day, he goes, winter's over, and I think he, and he, and, and he was about my age, like, where have you been, have you ever been to Canada before, <laughs> anyway, and we, we, you know, the point was made this morning about, about weather, but we should not be obsessed about the weather, we should be obsessed about the true God who controls all things, but um, in, in many, you can understand not agree with, but can understand why, why many ancient cultures would develop these ideas that you had to appease these gods that provided rain and, 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 so, and so on, because when there was no rain, in, and, which would often happen, in the land of Israel today, you basically get a dry season from about somewhere in January all the way through to October, mid to late October, every year. It basically doesn't rain all that time. And then if the rains don't come uh, into the late fall and winter time, then you end up with drought. And today, it's because of technology, thank God for that, there's uh, ways around that. Uh, But in ancient times, there were not. Drought would bring about famine. And that leads us up to how Elijah is going to confront the evil of his day. And so in two chapters before the one that was read, uh, 1 Kings 17, verse 1, he declares to King Ahab, he comes out of nowhere, 
We're not introduced to him. He just appears on the scene and he says to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. Pretty gutsy to be able to make such a prediction. Um, This was a judgment upon the people for the false god Baal they were following and a judgment on the God himself. And so um, it doesn't rain until later on. It takes about two years before, a little over two years, uh, before the rains come at Elijah's word. Anyway, after he gives this this prophecy, and it's it's interesting what happens to prophets. He comes and he predicts this, but very often what people do, and I've even heard of this sort of thing in in modern times, where, where somebody will stand up and they'll predict some sort of tragedy or difficulty and they end up getting blamed for it as if they're able to control uh, life. And so this was common then, it's common now that, uh, so Elijah goes into hiding and he becomes completely dependent upon God for his provision and protection in those years. And you could read about some of the details of that uh, in his story. So two years later, a little over two years later, as they, as there's going to be preparation for the rain, he issues a challenge to Ahab. Again, he, he comes out almost seemingly from nowhere, and he tells Ahab, gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. That's uh, 1 Kings 18, verse 19. And it's interesting, I've read this story so many times, as many of you had, but it looks like only the prophets of Baal showed up even though he called for the uh, uh, 850, uh, there was only the, the, um, the prophets of Baal that seemed to show up. So they meet at Mount Carmel. Uh, one of our, our members actually was born uh, in that area in modern-day Haifa. Um, lovely, lovely part of the land of Israel today. And um, they meet on top, of the, on the top of the mountain and... Elijah issues a promise. Remember, it hadn't rained. And he says, I'll tell you what. The prophets of Baal, they'll call out to Baal to, make it, uh, uh, to send down fire from heaven to consume um, a sacrifice. And I'll do the same. Whichever, God's, God answer, whichever God answers, he is the true God. And so they're up to the challenge. They think they're up to the challenge. And so for quite a while, the prophets of Baal, they cry out. They eventually, out of frustration, I think, uh, start even cutting themselves and nothing happens. Elijah starts to mock Baal. Um, maybe, you know, maybe he's gone on a trip. Maybe he's sleeping. This, this sort of thing. And nothing happens. Nobody answers. Then it's Elijah's turn. And, and he does this, seems to us like a strange thing first. They have some water nearby, even though there's been a drought for two years. They get some water. And they drench the sacrifice in the altar that, that, so that it's totally covered in water and it's dripping into this trench around uh, the altar. And then he prays. He prays a straightforward prayer to God to come and answer. And boom! Fire comes down from heaven and it's it's... When God answers, he really answers. He consumes the sacrifice. He consumes the altar. He consumes the water. It says even the dust. That's how God answers prayer. And that results in a slaughter of the prophets. 
Then Elijah says, I hear the sound of rain, and he begins to pray. And it's one of those instances in, in the scriptures where when we read it, it's as though he prayed, prayed seven times before it happened. It's like we don't really get the intensity of what that was. Now remember, here's a man who had issued a, 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 such a prophecy, went into hiding because he was in danger of his life, um, dependent upon God all those uh, during that time. Then another confrontation. And we read about this, we just kind of think, you know, sort of, he's the prophet of God. That's just so easy for him. But as we'll see, not so, because he is just like us. Uh, and he goes to pray. And it appears, he, I think one of the ways that we could say it today is he prayed his guts out. And I don't know how many of you have ever experienced praying your guts out, where you're praying to God not, you know, you know, thank you, Lord, for this horrible difficulty and I'm in and please help us, amen. But where you are, you, it's almost like that cutting that the prophets of Baal were doing to the outside of their bodies. A diligent, earnest prayer is like a cutting of one's heart. And so when he went off to pray at this time of, of now it's famine because of the drought, it hadn't rained in over two years, and everything's depending on God coming through, and he goes to pray and nothing happens. People are watching. And he goes to pray again. And again, so he's not just praying, please bring the rain, amen. He is pouring out his heart before the Lord. It is absolutely exhausting. It is soul-tearing work to do this. When Paul talks about when his, his burden for the believers in the region of Galatia, he says, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in labor pains for you all over again. Now you might think, what does Paul know about labor pains? But you get the, what he's trying to tell them, that he's going through anguish for the people that he loves. Some of you have experienced anguish for the people that you love. And picture that, everything was depending on Elijah's prayer at this time. Not, and he prays, and he prays, and nothing happening. And they're watching on top of it all. And finally, he sees in the distance a little tiny itty bitty rain cloud. And he knows God is coming through. And he says to King Ahab, you better get on your chariot and head back to town because the rains are coming. Not the itty-bitty rains, not the little drizzle, but a great downpour. And then what happens, and it's, it's an unusual thing, and scholars struggle over this, why, how could he do, and all the rest, but he begins to run before Ahab's chariot and it's a, all the way to the Valley of Jezreel, and it's a 27-kilometer run. It's about half a marathon. Thankfully, I looked it up. Google Maps is such an amazing resource. It's almost all downhill. And so, you know, grateful for that. But that's quite a run. And uh, it was an honor to do that sort of thing, to run before the king. So on one hand, it seems, look how God came through. Well, not even, looks, God came through. And the message is out there. And the, the prophets of Baal are judged. Looks like everything's going to be okay now until we get to the chapter that was read for us. Again, the first four verses of chapter 19 we read, 
Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which is another, that's a very far distance to the very south of the land of Israel. Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. So the question is, are you surprised that he ran away? This is the great Elijah. He spoke and the rain stopped. He prayed and the rains came back. He called down fire from heaven, faithful to God all those years in ways that I'm guessing few of us would ever experience. That's one of the ways he may not be like us. But are we therefore surprised that he ran away? But what I've been trying to share over these weeks is Elijah was not a superhero. He was just a human being like the rest of us. Think about all that he had gone through the past couple of years. The physical stress, the emotional stress, the spiritual stress. Yes, he had great bravery to challenge the king and the false prophets in public. But do you think that takes no toll emotionally and physically and so on? So God came through for him. But think of the amount of stress he must have been under. Then, the emotional and physical turmoil of the slaughter of the false prophets. Now he's in the middle of a military uh, situation. And that, most of us wouldn't be up to it in the first place, but those who have engaged in that way, it takes a great toll. Elijah was totally spent. And now, there's a believable threat on his life. He's completely depleted. And so he runs off to the wilderness and he prays that God would take his life. He says in the version that was read, it says it's enough, but it's really like he, in the Hebrew, it's more, it's too much. And I hope we could get that because we've experienced that. It's too much. I've had it. Remember, he did a great job. Up to that point, it was, all, it was straight A's. But it was too much. And so he's, he's, he starts off in the, in the south of Israel and God sends an angel to help him rest and to give him what to eat. And then he goes further away and he goes, goes to Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. It's likely he was trying to go back to the beginning of it all where God first met with his people to possibly meet God again, recalibrate something. And then God speaks to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Chapter 19, verse 9. I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, he says. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Some people like to point out that he wasn't absolutely alone. God tells him that he was holding on to seven other faithful Israelites. But it's possible Elijah didn't know that. And he had good reason to not believe that. It's good that God would encourage him in that way. 
but we could understand where he was at. See, one of the things that would add to his depression, which is exactly what this is, it was severe burnout, depression, with suicidal thoughts, that one of the things that that added to this is that while he experienced a great victory, absolutely a great victory, the corrupt system that had led to the situation that they were in still remained. So on one hand, God comes through, fire from heaven, the prophets of, these prophets of Baal are killed. Remember, there's the other prophets of Asherah. We don't know where they are. But it's like same old, same old. Jezebel hasn't been taken out of office, and she still appears to have this power to do him in. So it's like, for naught. And again, some of you have been there. You've been in difficult situations. You've seen a little bit of positive whatever. And then, but after it's over, you're a little encouraged, but then, but it's, Nothing's really changed. How do you keep up a positive attitude when you're in a situation like that and you're completely emotionally, spiritually, physically depleted? So then he's instructed to stand before the Lord. We, we heard that read. And he experiences violent wind and, and, and fire and earthquake. But we're told over and over again that God is not in those things. Well, what's that about? Well, that's the Sinai experience. It's the Sinai experience where um, God appeared to the people of Israel in thunder and and fire and earthquake. And likely that's what he was looking for. And that's what we often do. I do it myself. I go back in my mind as I'm praying when I'm struggling with things. They're not going uh, the way I would like them to go. I'm discouraged. And so I remember what God did in the past. And I often long for that experience and the way that I experienced God back then. I, I do it on quite a regular basis, actually. And it is very encouraging. But it creates a pining for that. And likely that's what Elijah was doing. He was pining for a well-documented God experience. But God comes to him in a different way. Which traditionally in English, as, as Krista mentioned, in a still, small voice. In other words, a whisper. And God gives to him, through that whisper, the next stage of his mission. And he goes. So I'd like to share very briefly as I close a prescription based on this passage for depression. We've been there. And many people still are afraid to admit burnout, depression, great discouragement. Few people are afraid to tell even people close to them that they're actually considering suicide. But the first, the first item in this prescription for depression is we need to be honest about how we feel and the situation that we find ourselves in, like Elijah did. When God confronted him, he didn't just go out oh, and mutter like a lot of us might do in a situation like that, or just try to, you know, you know, this, I don't know what to call it, you know what it is, just that didn't do that. He told him exactly how he felt. He told him his understanding of the situation and he told God that he wanted to die. And God had him take a time out. Stop. Rest. 
eat. That's what he did. That's how it started. And then he got away. He got away to be alone with God. You know, we have a thing called a retreat that in, in Many people have gone to retreats, but retreats are almost like summer camp, and they can be very, very busy. I don't know how many of us have taken the time to get away and be with the Lord, or get in a situation, because sometimes we're in a, a place where maybe it's not good for us to be alone, but get to a place where we be quiet, get to a place where we can reconnect with God. It is so necessary. We need to do it daily. We need to do it weekly, and we need to do it from time to time to be restored in the Lord. We don't. We will burn out. It, it could get a lot worse. And then, when we're in that place, where we're getting the rest that we need, and we're eating properly, we need to let God speak to us. But we need to let God speak to us His way. Now, everyone's different. Everyone's at a different stage of life. But we need to beware of the snare, two snares actually. The insistence that God speaks to me this way. That's how he speaks to me. Thank God for all of us that Elijah was open to a whisper. Now, I've heard sermons on this passage that tell, try to tell me that God used to speak in big dramatic events and now he only speaks through a, through a still small voice. How could we miss the lesson? The lesson isn't how God speaks. It's the lesson that God speaks in any way that he wishes. And so what we need to do is put ourselves before him and let him speak to us in the way that he wants. That's snare number one. Well, God speaks to me only in this particular way. Snare number two. God doesn't speak to me. Oh, God speaks to them. God speaks to her. God speaks to him, but God doesn't speak to me. That's a lie. God wants to speak to all of us. How he speaks to us might be different. Please don't compare with one another. We could encourage one another because a lot of people, especially in our secular society, we are not trained to be sensitive to, to spiritual communication. We tend, to, a lot of people, even some churches, they'll, they'll teach that, oh, if you're hearing things, it's got to be not from God. Well, you might be hearing things that are not from God, but it's possible that God's knocking on the door of your heart somehow, tapping you on the shoulder somehow. And I'm, you know, I'm tempted to give you a list of different ways, but I'm not going to. Because what we need to start is simply saying, Lord, speak to me. And I want to encourage everyone here. It's been a very hard year. I'm so grateful. I finally read in, in a mainstream media article, it was the Globe and Mail a couple days ago, a report about the psychological damage that the COVID restrictions have been doing for people. It's all been about the, how careful we need to be and all the fear and all the rest. And at least somebody had the courage to print the, uh, the bigger picture of the effect that the restrictions have been having on people. It's a real thing. And one of the things about these COVID restrictions, especially because we've been in our homes, we've been careful, 
our minds start to play tricks on us. We end up having thoughts we've never had before. We're confused in a way we've never been confused before. But because it doesn't feel like we're in the middle of war, in the middle, I wasn't here, uh, I was on the West Coast when you had the ice storm. And you have situations where you kind of like, you, you rally together and you fight the thing. And this is stay home. I know you're not sick, stay home. You've never been told in your entire life, you're not sick, you're not sick, stay home. Can't see your kids, can't see your grandchildren. And one half of us is, is convinced, oh yeah, this is a safe thing to know. Another part of us is going, no, no, this can't be right. And then you start having these thoughts and feelings and you don't know what's going on and you're feeling a little crazy, you don't know why. Well, we need help. We need help from God to sort these things out. And so we can't wait. We need to hear from God and If you are struggling, please reach out to me. As I've said before, I may not be the one to help you, but I'm committed to finding somebody who will. There's no shame in getting serious help and professional help when we're struggling emotionally. No shame at all. There's so much shame in this that God gave us a story of a very, very depressed, suicidal man who is just like us so that we can, with God's help, get on with the next stage of our life in God's timing and in God's way. Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank you so much that your word is true and real and that it doesn't It doesn't put on a show for us. It doesn't pretend. You don't pretend. You call us in to to truth, reality, including an understanding of our deepest struggles. Come into our lives afresh, Lord, that we might hear you, that we might be helped by you, deep in in the deepest places of our hearts and lives. Father, forgive us for hiding away because of our struggles. Bring us out, Lord, into the light. Help us to have understanding for one another in our difficulties, whatever they might be, that we might help one another find our ultimate help in you. We look to you. Lord, where there is discouragement, depression, and even suicidal thoughts among uh, the members of our community, we ask that you would come with your grace and love and that you would lift us up at this time and give us understanding for one another and help us to point one another in the right direction. And would you please speak to us in the way that you want to, at this time. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For additional messages and more information, please visit us on the web at allsaintslutheran.ca.